Hello, Justin here. Before we start today's show, there's just a bit of housekeeping. This show is inspired by Time, the drama on BBC One that concluded last week and is available on iPlayer. It's not a review of the show, but there are a couple of spoilers. We also mention self-harm, but don't go into any detail at all. As you'll hear, Jazz works in a prison environment with offenders with highly complex and challenging behaviour, but with an NHS-led pathway strategy in place. So this conversation raises some of the possibilities of what a well-funded and resourced prison service focusing on mental health outcomes and work on masculinities could look like. Also, if you'd like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a patron of the show. Just £1 a month will help to pay me to make this show, as well as to pay an appearance fee for fellow freelance guests. There are also occasional bits of bonus content for patrons, as well as access to the Discord server where you can chat with other listeners. That's at patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Thank you so much. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Jazz Tahara, who is a counselling psychologist working in the prison service and also in private practice. Hello Jazz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Jazz and I have been talking about doing a podcast for ages and then the show comes on the TV called Time and suddenly I think, well, perhaps we should do a super topical show. Um, Time is a BBC uh, drama written by Jimmy McGovern, which ended on Sunday night. All the episodes are available on iPlayer. It's a three-part series, three-part show, yeah, three-part shows uh, starring uh, Sean Bean and Stephen Graham, uh, and with, with an ensemble cast. It's absolutely uh, riveting, but also deeply scary and um, perhaps unwatchable. Uh, for a lot of people there are some incredibly distressing scenes in it and I'm not sure that they do enough to really point that out in the content notes so if um, if uh, self-harm would be difficult for you to watch uh, suicide ideation would be difficult for you to uh, uh, to watch extreme very brutal violence would be very realistic brutal violence if that would be difficult for you to watch please don't watch it basically because it's it's really hard however um it made me it made me cry several times it was deeply affecting i think it's one of the best tv shows i've ever seen um and everyone is talking about it in those kinds of terms as well like with a lot of jimmy mcgovern dramas it's incredibly political uh it'll it'll really perhaps uh, shed a light and make you think about uh, the carceral system that we have and what prison does. Um, I think it's really important. This isn't a review of that show, really, because, uh, well, Jazz hasn't seen it, because, like, for Jazz, like, this would be, like, like by the sounds of it, Jazz, this would be, like, too much for you, right? I mean, you want to yeah, get home, I, you're not... You know, I, what are you watching when you get home? I, yeah, I don't think I'd be switching off. Um but having said that, just listening to your intro, I'm I'm kind of intrigued, and I might want to watch it now. So <laughs> there's plenty of good telly on, though. You know, but, uh, yeah, it's um, there is, there is. Yeah, it's one of those things that also I just couldn't binge. I I watched one a bit too close to bedtime one night, and then mm-hmm. uh, I just couldn't sleep, and mm-hmm. so I watched it early in the evening, and then I made sure I was watching some stupid comedy afterwards, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just to try and. Um, come down from it all of this obviously is very you know 
me talking about my experience of uh, watching a show, a prison, a prison drama, which focuses a lot on mental ill health, mm-hmm. is nothing compared to the work that you're obviously having to you're having to do. So it's not a review of the show, but I thought it would be really good for us, a good starting point for me and Jazz to talk about um, the, the things that we're actually interested in talking about anyway, which is mental health therapy masculinity Mm -hmm. and so we'll kind of start with this and then we'll see where the show takes us um so there was one most of the people in in the show jazz had um some kind of mental health issue which was either present before coming into prison or Mm -hmm. because prison such a stressful environment um it was it was it was either exacerbated or caused by uh by prison Mm. Um, and so, but there was one in particular where um, the inmate was uh, doing self harm and mm. then uh, killed themselves uh, with an overdose. Okay, um, oh, sorry, spoiler as mm. well. I'll I'll put it at the front that there are several spoilers, and I'll put my own content note for this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy died, and then his mum outside was protesting and had a go at one of the prison officers, the prison off the prison officer played by Stephen Graham, saying, "You know, you didn't do enough." And his response was, "Look, so many of our inmates, so many of the prisoners, mm. have got some kind of mental health problem that shouldn't even be here, but there's not enough space for them in mental health treatment services. But we do the best we can, mm. and it's really kind of sad and grim." But does this kind of tally with your own experience as well? I should also say that we didn't see anyone, apart from a chaplain, we didn't see anyone being able to offer any um, like pastoral care at all. I'm sure that this must also happen in prison. But um, just speaking as much as you are able to from your experience of um, doing mental health work in prisons and with prisoners, mm-hmm. uh, does this kind of chime with your experience? Um, so my experience is slightly different in that I work for the offender personality distress pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a, but we're part of a broader service. So we have uh, we have uh, an assessment and treatment service that, that that that's what I work for. Then we also have something called a psychologically planned environment or a pipe unit, and mm-hmm. we also have a third. We also have like a third arm to it, which is like um, they're more of a sort of um, an immediate sort of distress service. Um, okay. So they work on like a traffic light system, and they'll go and see people across the uh, across the whole prison site. Um, so where where the where I well where I sit and the team that I sit in, we are a psychologically informed team that work um, sort of multidisciplinary, um, like as a methodology, and um, we have counsellors, um, psychologists, uh, forensic psychologists, occupational therapists, uh, creative therapists. Um, so we work quite closely with the with the with the gentleman that we see on the wing. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna use words interchangeably here because because uh, um, I will often term them gentlemen or mm-hmm. young men um, because they're 18 to 25 year old young men. Um, yeah. I and I do fully I, I do want to take you know I want to take the time to say that I do fully acknowledge that they're there for some of them are there for some horrific crimes. Mm. Um, and that's not in any way to diminish the crime. 
Um, but part of the ethos of working in, the, in that sort of personality distress service is, is about acknowledging them for their humanity as well. Mm. Um, so with regards to sort of incidences of self-harm, yeah, we have a lot of incidences of self-harm. Uh, some of it, what you would class as sort of superficial, um, some of it can be quite horrific and quite horrendous. Mm. Um, but we take the approach that a lot of that is communication of distress. Mm. So we will try and spend time thinking about what has led to this person being in so much distress and how do we go about trying to alleviate some of that distress through the course of their their stay with us and through the course of their their sentence you know how do we try and offer people with the skills to to be able to cope and manage and work their way through the the stresses and the the distress that's caused um to them and by themselves so and there's multiple reasons for that that sense of distress um some of it can be internal so a lot of it is it comes from a sense of remorse or um not being able to maintain a sense of guilt due to the crimes um for some of them it's it's external factors it could be that they've had uh you know they've had bad news from home and um they're not able to hold or maintain that they're sort of stuck that they're, they're in a position where they're not able to help something so if there's something going on at home for them, um, they're essentially left powerless because you, you're you're frozen. You can you can't you can't really get out. Um, you can't go and help. You can't change the situation. All you can do is deal with the bad news. And mm. there are you know there are various coping mechanisms for that. Um, but for a lot of the a lot for the young men that we see, um, there's just so much in terms of not being able to hold or maintain. Those, those regular mechanisms that, that uh, we would use um, in order to cope with distress that they, they end up acting in such a manner that, that they, um, they self-harm. Mm. So, yeah. So, the, so I guess the first thing just to point out, I mean, the, the drama actually covers quite a lot of, um, of those kinds of reasons for why people mm. might be really uh, struggling, which is quite interesting. Mm. So the first thing, I guess, is that, you know, Obviously, the I guess the drama isn't about really like giving like a uh, necessarily, although it is very real. It feels very realistic in terms of how stressful and how bad the prison environment can be. It didn't show that there are that there are people in place who do provide support. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like that support is available, um, even though that even though that support might not be sufficient and just as it is in the uh, outside of prisons too um the interesting yeah. one of the uh, you go on do you want to say more yeah about no that? no so yeah. yeah absolutely the um the way the way the um outside society is mimicked in the prison service is absolutely true it's absolutely right. correct so yeah so sorry to interrupt yeah no well let's talk about that and so so it so that implies that there are lots of people who are just not able to access the treatment that they really need because of resources. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, are you able to kind of chat about that or? or um... Yeah, so, so psychological services in the prison establishment is um, generally it's set towards something called programs. Mm -hmm. um, and they are sort of, um, they've been, they're, they're programs that have been devised in order to. Um, to sort of uh, teach um, or get prisoners to think about 
um, the reasons that they've they've entered into the prison system, uh, their offending behaviour, ways to sort of short, short circuit that offending behaviour in the future. So re- really um, trying to tackle head on the issues um, that lead to, to lead to someone going into prison, lead to offending behaviour, lead to crime, and um, to try and think about ways around it. Some of some of the programmes are based around. Um, victim awareness and sort of mm-hmm. trying to I suppose trying to garner sympathy uh, not simply empathy trying to garner empathy for victims um, mm-hmm. so um, trying to get offenders or prisoners to think about what it's like to be in the other person's shoes mm-hmm. um, so there are things like that but that's they're very sort of psychologically based services in terms of mental health I think there are inclusion teams across most sites um, mm-hmm. and they are mental health psychiatric services um, but predominantly, they will be they will be there for um, short term, short interventions. So um, they will offer they will offer short term input. They'll have nursing teams uh, who are trained psychologically, um, some who deliver sort of CPT, um, and then they will be patched into psychiatrists who will be able to sort of help in terms of uh, medication, so antidepressants and. And things like that Med- medications for adhd medications for um for for bipolar affective disorder and so on and so forth as well so so people can enter the establishment with your classic sort of psychiatric issues mm. um and then if if that becomes unmanageable in, within the establishment itself then people then get referred on to forensic mental health units mm-hmm. so then they will be they will actually be taken out of the prison system and um uh, sort of clerked in at mental health mm. institutions, so forensic mental health hospitals. So um, in order in order to receive uh, care there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So so there are things like that. But I think uh, I'm as far as I'm aware, there's only in terms of the OPD for the 18 to 25 year olds, there's only two units in the country. I think one is the one that I'm at, and there's another one somewhere else as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they but um, our service is a is a admission service. So we have beds in, on the on the wings, mm-hmm. and um, so and they're, and they're sort of paid for by the OPD pathway and the and the NHS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the so um, Sean the character Sean Bean's character's uh, mum was played by brilliant Sue Johnston, and one mm-hmm. of the one of the memorable quotes that she said in, in a prison visit was that you're here as punishment, not for punishment. You know, mm-hmm. he he really felt that. Um, he was there to atone and mm. that that's you know it, it it's not meant to be an easy it's obviously not meant to be an easy place to do mm. that work mm. but that it should be a place where you have space to to atone to think about what he's done mm. and to to process that and learn and come through yeah the to so to what ex- to what extent does the the kind of the culture of a prison like allow this? I mean, we t- kind of talked about scarcity of services, but presumably mm. there's there, there there is a scarcity generally in in, in allowing in, or in helping prisoners to kind of go through that process. Is that true? Um, I can only sort of um, I can only really sort of attest for for the service that I work in. Mm. Um, but we do a lot of work around sort of offences and atonement and um, guilt and, mm-hmm. and how to work through that. Mm-hmm. 
so it's, it's one of the big themes that we start with once we start to when we when we um take gentlemen onto the wing they come onto the wing and then they uh, we sort of stabilize them get them used to the environment for a little while um then we start introducing them to some some of the psychological work that we do with them um so i'm there as a as a therapist i've i think i've got a caseload of eight mm-hmm. that i see individually for one-to-one psychotherapy and um I also run two groups as well, um, and we shall be bringing more groups online in terms of um, in terms of. So we devise different groups um, to do different things, but uh, um, but ultimately we work about we work around the idea and the concept of being pro-social, mm-hmm. and we always work through trauma as well. Trauma is a massive thing, so the the things that lead people being into the into the establishment is very much sort of a high priority for us so we do we do try and spend time there thinking about um what's led people into the establishment and to be honest some of the case histories are horrific Mm. like there are some some cases you read and you really wonder how some of the some of the young people that we have there are functioning at all in any way shape or form because they've been through massive massive abuse traumas themselves um and I can't, I can't really understate that enough because it's, or I can't overstate that enough. It's just, it's, it's, some of it is really horrific. Um, I think some of the argument that we have is around, and this is sort of in psychology generally. I think some of the argument that we have is around, well, why are some people's um, coping strategies lead them in ways that don't lead to offending behaviour, and some of them do. Mm. Um, I think the jury's still out on that. Although there's a lot of rich literature for either side of the argument. Mm. Um, I think we have to just to take human nature into consideration. Just, just, just the general nature of mankind. I think is mm. uh, is is not one that is great anyway. So mm. I think we have to take things like that because you know um, there's a really famous old sort of Freudian quote. Um, you know, humanity is the absence of being human. Mm. So, so there's the the idea around actually being human is is to understand ourselves in all our horrificness, mm. and uh, you know, and and the the facade of humanity is to hide all that stuff. So, um, so I would take that approach oftentimes when I'm when I'm working with some of the young lads that I'm working with, mm. um, and just, and just to see that actually, you know what, they may have done something that's been pretty horrendous, but. I think given the correct circumstances most of us would would do something like that as well mm. so uh, well not all of us but you know most of us most of us could be led down that path mm. the just the just to before we kind of talk about the um the out of prison experience i guess mm-hmm. this might be the first time that the young men you're working with have come into contact with mental health services presumably um, some how... some of them have yeah some some of them they get um, they get referred to um, like cam services and stuff like that at a younger age yeah. and the dropout rate is um, is quite high mm-hmm. um, but then I would place that in context of things like attachment issues mm-hmm. so um, it's hard to it's hard to um, attach to caregiver figures. Uh, when you have a history where you're, you know some, sometimes your care, care providers aren't that great mm-hmm. and uh, a, a lot of their history is based around sort of self-preservation and, and sort of self-parenting in maladaptive ways mm-hmm. so um, you know and and sometimes the the those maladaptions are 
they're, they're not great, but they're survival mechanisms, essentially. That's what they're there for. Um, and so to go into a CAMS unit and try to, or to go into sort of CAMS community care, um, and then trying to attach to certain figures who are trying to provide you assistance isn't that great. So the dropout rate is quite high. Um, but also CAMS, I mean, CAMS, just like the rest of uh, adult mental health, is severely, severely underfunded. So, yeah, we should say here, uh, CAMS stands for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is severely underfunded. There's mm. often a huge waiting list, isn't there? Massive, um, yeah. So um, let's talk about these these kind of barriers. So clearly, um, there's, you know, as you probably know, dear listener, there is like a, well, there's a mental health crisis generally, but certainly mental health crisis amongst young men is something that's often reported. Uh, very high suicide rates among young men. Mm. Um, and there is often a an assumption that the barriers around uh, uh, young men and mental health and mental health support are barriers from the young men themselves and from men and masculinity uh, around help-seeking behaviours, that this is something that uh, masculinity, the rules of masculinity tell us, tell us that we're not allowed to do that. And so there is a barrier there. And certainly there is a barrier there, I guess, but there are also these structural barriers that where there is a very long waiting list. If you have a barrier yourself around seeking help and then there's a long waiting list for you to get that help, then there's a double barrier going on. It makes it doubly hard, right? Mm. So yeah. is this something that you find when... Um, so I guess when you're working with the, the guys inside prison, are they... Mm. Do you find that some of those barriers from their side have come down because at least you're able to say, look, I'm able to work with you, I'm right here? Um, um, sometimes I think the um, the thing that I've, I've found in my experience is to, is to temper my expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, it can take a long time just to get someone in the room. That, that, sense, of, that sense of trust is quite... Um, the, the sense of mistrust is very, very strong. Mm. Um, and so to just to be able to establish bonds um, in terms of being on the wing, for example, mm-hmm. um, it takes time. It takes about six to eight weeks just to bed in, just right. just just for them to. Uh, so when we have, for example, when we have a new member of the team joins us, um, they have eight weeks where they're not really actually doing anything other than being on the wing, other than just being around people. Um, People get to know their face. They might come up to them occasionally and ask them a question for something, but that's very much based on the ethos that um, you you can't be expected to, um, as you would like in sort of community, as a community clinician, you can't be expected just to to have them walk in the room and start talking to you. It doesn't work in that way. You have to absolutely strip back all sort of... um, all sort of expectations and try and think like you're starting from scratch. Mm. So uh, people, you know, as I said, we'd have a new member of team start with us and they'd have about six to eight weeks where they're not at, they're not doing any clinical work. They're not doing any face-to-face work. They're just bedding into the service mm. and just getting, just getting the, um, getting the guys to get to know them. Mm. really and they might just introduce themselves every now and then and that, and that type of thing and there's you see so much suspicion on the wing yeah. um and just just the introduction of one new member of staff can completely destabilize you oh. know sort of 20 20 to 25 of them sort of it can it can really sort of it's kind of puts them 
gives them the heebie-jeebies, I think, a little bit. Mm. Um, and so that you know, and that's the sort of level of distress that we're working at. That's the level of sort of affect that we're working at with with some of these you know young men. They're, they're very very heightened in terms of their their um, uh, oh, what do you call it? The, the anxiety. Yeah. So so the affect is really high. So yeah, so we we have to spend a lot of time just trying to do the basics, just to just to do the basics. So I've experienced a similar kind of thing in terms of doing creating sexual health projects for young men. Like mm. there was a very long period of, um, you know, I used to uh, I've done this a couple of times over quite a number of so I've run a couple of projects over a long over quite over a total of eleven years doing this kind mm. of work where. Um, I would set up a project and work with young men to set up a project. I'd have the, you know, the branding, the name of it, and I'd get all the condoms and all the leaflets and all the materials and things. Mm. And I'd literally sit in a room, often for weeks, waiting for the numbers to come in because they need to. There does need to be a sense of trust. Yeah. I think the kind of trust that I'd be talking about here is that sense that they're not going to get judged, that um, it's an okay thing for them to do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to know that I'm offering them a service that they actually want rather mm-hmm. than what someone thinks that they should have Mm -hmm. so i guess there's that kind of you know is this is this service actually good enough is this service valuing me is it demonstrating that it values me and that's something that i learned that i had that i had to be very very patient in that kind of work in order to get them to come in and eventually they really do and they tell Mm -hmm. their friends and they've checked it out Mm. so presumably there's there's a there's a little bit of that going on here as well around it being okay for them to seek help as well as their as as well as presumably their their traumas and their yeah, yeah. Their stresses themselves preventing them too yeah i mean um just uh, anecdotally i've got uh i was in a group the other day and we were working around the topic of trust and and it's really it's like following following covid19 um we've had to sort of essentially rebuild the service from scratch in terms of um it caught like uh where we weren't we, we weren't allowed on site for a little while due to the pandemic back in sort of march last year um we we were ejected from the site and uh once they brought us back in we've had to do a lot of work about re-establishing trust with with them again again it goes back to stuff about attachment you know mm-hmm. care providers have left and that caused a lot of damage to the relationships between us or psychological relationships um between us all i think what i think that we they got pretty used to us being back immediately um like when we came back in it took them about a month to readjust again but in terms of doing any psychological work at all they were so hesitant and you know and really really it was really difficult to engage with them so we've started running a group um called the enabling environment group um and there's sort of like 10 different protocols and and the the thing that you just reminded me of there was we were discussing the topic of trust and what it means to be trusted and trustworthy. And um, one of the guys said, this was only a couple of days ago, he said, you know, it took me, it took me like six months to get used to my colleague um, mm. who was working with him. It took me six months to, to trust enough in him that he wasn't just trying to get into my head and fuck with my head, basically. So sorry for, for the language, but I mean, that's to, no, to paraphrase right. him. But it was just like, it, it, yeah, it took me six months just, just to realise that he's not trying to fuck with my head. Like, he's he's just trying to help. Mm-hmm. And even that puts me on a, that even that puts me on the back foot. Even that terrifies me. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's taken me six months just to dip my toe in the water. Yeah. 
and that is that is consistency so it's like a, you just you just you turn up you're in the room every week you wait for someone to come in you wait for them to come in there are weeks where they won't come in there are weeks where they refuse to come in they might touch on something by accident you know it's, it's the same as sort of regular therapy you, you might go in there with no agenda and then say something and then and then something sets you off um you might go down an alleyway or an avenue and then you don't know where you are and then all of a sudden you, you said something about your deepest darkest parts mm. and you're exposed to it and then you know the I think the the brutality of it is that in the in the community you get to finish the session you you may have snotty tissues you get to clean yourself up wipe yourself off get back in the car or get back on the train mm. um get back on the bus you have 20 minutes to yourself you know till you get home or up to an hour whatever um till you get home you can readjust and reset yourself you can go get coffee whatever you can do that uh when these guys sessions finish they um go back behind their doors Mm. so they go back into their pad they go back into their cell yeah and then they're there for the rest of the day and so they've just had something hugely exposing and uh, they've got nowhere to go with it they just go straight back behind the door and that's and i think that that's the for me that's the brutality of it and my some of the way around that is to i've started factoring stuff for sort of um sort of uh mindfulness and breathing techniques and and really starting to dampen down some of that um some of that physical affect Mm -hmm. so if we if we've had a particularly elevating session then we will sit down and do sort of five, ten minutes of breathing and just to get some, someone back on an even keel, just get them back in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might do a body scan. We might do um, a brief, like a brief mindful script, something that mm-hmm. I've sort of memorised, or um, or we might do uh, sort of one of these gestalt tasks where you, where you try and think of that emotion and turn it into something else. Mm-hmm. So you might turn it into, um, say, for example, the one I normally like is... Uh, that feeling that you're feeling imagine it as a brick wall now imagine that brick wall as um, a bowl of jelly uh, as a as a wall made of jelly mm. you know and imagine what would it what would it be like to stick your hand in it and wobble it around and you know all of a sudden that feeling starts to dampen and you start to think about that feeling in a different way and um is i mean there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, i remember reading uh, nlp books way back in the day uh, mm. things like awaken the giant within they used to have the, the scripting stories where you would imagine you're sat in a cinema watching the scene and all that kind of stuff so mm. um and it's just to create critical distance essentially that's all those tasks sure. tasks are there for they're just to create some distance between you and what you're feeling mm. and then you can start to explore it in a way that's safe again because all yeah. of a sudden this stuff gets dragged out um you know and that's that, that can be quite difficult it can be quite brutal in the room and and me as a clinician on the other side of it is once that session ends i'm sat in the room for 10 minutes just trying to decompress and i'm like what happened how do we how do we go about changing that how do we go about you know was that safe to do mm. um or am i worried that i'm going to come in tomorrow and find out there has been some help self-harm as a result of it right you know things like that and actually do i need to change tack or change approach or do I need to think about things in a different way? So, um, that must be or, really tough. or is it safe to do? Um, yeah, it can be because, because mm. ultimately what, what you're looking, what you have is a duty of care. So, yeah. um, and you, you know, as, as distressing as it can be, um, you also have to hope and hold 
that they can they can self-soothe in certain ways you know part part of the part of the issue is that they that they don't really self-soothe in certain ways which is the reason you know, you know it's part of the part of the trauma part of the trauma history so it's part of the reason as to why they're offending so you have to try and take sort of those positive risks i think um and if something sure. is quite quite distressing you hold that in mind and then you go back to that no i'm here i'm i'm here in order to help and assist and do the things that i can in a in a positive way for you mm. um and we try and rebuild that trust so and i've had that with uh, there's there's one gentleman there's one young man in particular um who every time we touch on something quite tough from his past he will um he will not come in the room for about three or four weeks right he won't come back in the room for about three or four weeks. He won't do it, you know. Um, and you have to. So then you have to think on the fly. You have to think of different ways of trying to engage this person, because mm. they might have an hour-long session, uh, you know, and they won't engage with it. So okay. So how do we go? You know, do we take the fight to them a little bit? Mm. You know, um, in a way that's not distressing or um, sort of any. You try not to replicate any past traumas and stuff like that. So it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be in their room, it would be, or in their pad, um, it would be sort of in the wider area, a bit more open space. They have an opportunity to walk away if they want to. They have an opportunity to turn you down completely, you know, that, those types of things. But um, often, more often than not, you get you get a lot of engagement that way. And then it's, you know, then it's easier to get them back in the room, for example. To- what is it that are they kind of on the same page as you about in in terms of um where they want to be like what the 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 purpose of it so i guess when you know when i do therapy when 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 if anyone listening has done you know private therapy Mm. um you might kind of have like a set of goals that you want to work towards over a certain number of weeks for example um, there might be a, a, a no matter what kind of style of therapy you're doing you're kind of on the same page about where you want it to go to what what, what the kind of place you want to be at by the, by the time you're by a certain point do you, is that something that you and the and the young men you're working with have do you have those kinds of shared goals in, in that same way how does that work yeah very much so so um we i work in it, it's it's slightly adapted but i pretty much work in the same way that i would work in the community so um i would um go in there we run an assessment um we historically would have um our assistant psychologists would do assessments Mm -hmm. um and they would they would create sort of like a uh, a joint formulation Mm. um with the with the person who's using the service um and then we we would plot a course of therapeutic treatment based on that and go back to them and it's again it's about co-production so it's about sort of how do we co-produce something that's going to be for your benefit um that kind of that kind of got kind of got put paid to during covid and again as i said we're sort of re-establishing all that at the moment so we are in the process of assessing some some lads to come on um come onto the service and um we will be running a full sort of four four sessions psychological assessments so i'd be going in and working in the same way that would be sort of psychodynamically in the community so i'd give them four sessions um to take a full case history uh come up with a formulation i would then um for me it's quite difficult because i i do psychodynamic formulations Mm -hmm. so then i would have to duplicate that work and put it into like a five piece formulation or a hot cross bun or something that becomes easier to digest something Mm -hmm. something that becomes easier to look at might often be visual um 
but I have I have to work in the way that I work because that's true to who I am. But then sure. um, I would then have to adapt that practice in order to make it usable, you know. Because I, if I, one of the things we've also learned all the way through this uh, pandemic is how many of how many of our, our um, service users are uh, dyslexic, right, or have uh, reading issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we that is something that we're working closely with in terms of with our occupational therapists and stuff. So we. Um, we are running sort of uh, assessments with dyslexia. Some some of them already have like they know. Um, oh, I need to read on blue paper in Comic Sans. So when you write your letter out, you would have a you have a protocol for each person and be like, right, okay. So I've got to print this letter out for this person, and it's got to be done in Comic Sans because otherwise they can't read it or they won't be able to read it. Or they'll have a complete difficulty in reading it. Um, and That's interesting. The and reading issue also came up in time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Subsequently, they won't read it, you know, and that, and that's yeah. the thing. The, uh, so when when we got um, taken out of the prison establishment um, during the COVID pandemic, the we had our own sort of anxiety as a service, and I think I think it was it was across the board in most of the psychological services. But we had our own anxieties about what we're going to do, what are they going to do, how are things going to be, um, you know are they going to be heightened are they going to be in distress or um is you know are they going to be you know um not adjusting appropriately mm-hmm. essentially so there was a lot of stuff about right okay let's just let's do loads of stuff for them we we would do them um workout plans we would do them uh we would uh, do them reading stuff uh we would write them letters all that kind of stuff all, all those types of bits and pieces oh. when we got back on site they were like <laughs> We're not reading that. Right. We've got time for that. It's like no, I'm not going to sit here and read that. I'm not going to do that. Some of them found the the workout booklets quite helpful because mm-hmm. they were doing uh, in cell workouts, like in pad workouts. So mm-hmm. there were these um, adjusted workout routines that you can do using the resistance bands and things mm-hmm. like that, and the stuff that you can do inside your cell because uh, the gyms were taken away, the the resistance gyms on the yards were taken away. Um, I think they were for a long period of time. They were under 23 hour lockdown. So for a long time during the pandemic, um, they were just getting time out to some uh, to make a phone call, um, have a quick stretch of their legs, and um, to get their to get their meals, and then they'd have to go back behind their door. And that was that was just essentially it was some some of them viewed it as punishment, but a lot of them realised that actually this is a this is quite bad if they've mm. done this across the whole prison. Um, it's across the whole estate, across every prison. Yeah. Um, and they've got friends. They were writing letters to friends and family and all this and all this kind of stuff. So they were getting news in from from external. They're like, actually, this is across the whole the whole of the UK. Yeah. They were watching things like BBC News. They they um you know um so they were on top of things and they they can't they sure. knew that this was something bad. Mm. And so they so whilst there was the frustration of it all, I think there was also the um the enlightened self interest. So mm. there, there was enough of them to go, oh, actually, you know what? This is probably for our own benefit. It's for our own safety. Right. Um, and so that um, it was something that was taken on board. Mm. Um, but what we found was is a lot of the stuff that we had done previously, to partially for our own anxieties, um, wasn't really taken on board. They didn't really want it. They were just right. like, no, this is not helpful. Like, uh, you giving me 
um, like 20 pages of text to read when I can just about read is not helpful. Right. So that's not going to help me. And it's not printed on paper that I can read it on. If it's printed on plain white paper in Times New Roman or in, you know, in regular, regular uh, Calibri or something, um, I can't read it. So... So is that yeah. so? Presumably, this is something that you where you can see that there might be some changes in processes from now on. Um, well, uh, we, yeah, we've we've yeah. we've implemented all of this. So when we came yeah. back, we we interviewed them all, and uh, we interviewed every single person. We were like, "What helped you? What benefited? What didn't help? What mm. didn't benefit? Um, what do you think could have helped you?" Um, so these all these types of questions. We we, we sort of um, revamped all their care plans with all these things taken into consideration, mm. and subsequently working with them moving forward has been sort of completely different far more yeah. person-centered way of working with people um try and take trying to take things into consideration for example uh, do you need do you need it on cream paper or do you need it on blue paper mm. we, we we've ordered those things in just so you can be able to read something yeah. we print it out in comic sans for you if you need it um in a in a bigger type typeface um mm getting in touch with the um, services like Books Behind Bars and, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the, um, there's a there's a reading charity that come in and help people learn to mm-hmm. read. Um, I can't remember their name for the life of me at the moment. I'll insert it. Well, I'll put it in the show notes. We'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so they, 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 they come in, and, and so we've had contact with with places like that, and mm. we're we're trying to really work with with some of our guys in terms of accessing education mm-hmm. now. So, um, education's running back on sites again. So, trying to get people into classes, get them into English and maths classes and things like that. Yeah. So, so, there's a lot of that, and 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 that they're the skills that will help people. Um, more of the practical skills that are going to help people when when they go back out. So yeah. once they're once they're released, once they once they've released their conditional date, mm-hmm. or if they get parole, um, that's what's going to help them on the out. Sort of more um, more practically, and the work that we do is is more about actually the the psychotherapy and the, and the and that critical engagement with the self, mm. um, in order to try and try and help them become sort of more adjusted or well-adjusted people yeah i mean i guess you need both don't you like you need the you need you need that kind of critical engagement with yourself as well as the the material um improvements of your life outside Mm. which might in some way ameliorate your circumstances or deter you from or or in some way direct you away from offending behavior i suppose Yeah, yeah i just wanted to also ask you about the culture and how i guess the difference between um you know, you doing therapy in private practice is, mm-hmm. um, you know, you get your 10 minutes. because This is why, as me and Meg John revealed in our episodes on therapy, therapists do 50 minutes because that 10 minutes is for the therapist to like... <sighs> Yeah, yeah, and then they and then the other person goes away and has their coffee and they go home and stuff. And then you might see them next week. Yeah, Here, of yeah. course, they're going into a culture, so you're you're providing the service within a culture. Mm-hmm. And what do you, do you get a sense of there being like a? Um, and also the other thing that we're getting in broader culture is you know men should talk about their feelings to other men and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you get the sense within the prison environment of there being either a change in culture or? ways where people can can kind of talk to, to recognize mental health as an important um as something that's important and valuable um 
Yeah, so um, once again, I can I can only really speak from my experience and, mm. and the establishment that I work at. Um, but the the actual service that we run has uh, specialist trained um, officers, and there are there are tight knit group. I think there's fifteen of them in total, mm. um, who have um, sort of psychological training. They shadow us a lot mm. as well. Uh, we provide them. Um, sort of uh, training programs and uh, sort of further education on psychological and therapeutic concepts. Mm-hmm. So for example, we we have a journal club um, last year, they or no, two years ago, sorry, they read uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh. So they, so as, uh, so as a journal club, they read The Body Keeps the Score and then they sat down and discussed it. They had a seminar group bet- between all the officers to try and try and work out what their thoughts and feelings were with a lot of these things. Right. Um, we try to introduce them to the concepts of transference and counter-transference. Um, so the ideas around, um, well, what do, what do you think What do you think some of these um, guys see when they see you? What are they reacting to, mm-hmm. especially when they're brand new um, onto the wing and onto the service? What do you think they're reacting to? So they see you as authority, so they see you as paternal, they see you as a father figure, mm-hmm. you know. Have you gone through their case history? What's their relationship been like with their parents? You know, what is it? Was their relationship been like with their teachers? Uh, you know, if if they've uh, been in and out of people pupil referral units and bits and pieces like that. Um, so you know, some of the case histories you're talking about, you've they've annoyed a teacher so much that the teachers turn around and hit them. So, yeah. um, so, um, and and don't get me wrong, for one second, they can activate that response in you. But you, you can definitely want to turn around and hit them, but that's what they're good at. That's the transference and counter-transference, and it's okay. So like um, things like hating the counter-transference of Winnicott paper. So that was one of the that was one of the, my suggestions for a, for a journal club that we read in the future. In because you have to understand what hatred does. Hatred mm. is a feeling. Hatred is a, is something that you know the the absence of feeling is the problem. Like if, if you have no affect, if you have no feeling towards someone, then you you're not sort of um, you're not meeting them in terms of their humanity. Mm. So uh, if if you're annoyed or pissed off with someone, it means you actually care about them in some way, shape, or form, which is better than nothing. So and actually, what does that hatred do? What does that annoyance do? As long as you don't turn around and start a fight or escalate a situation, that's you know, and they're very very good at that. Our officers are very very good at that. Um, they're really good at de-escalation. Um, I, I, I wish I could tell you how good they are at de-escalation, but they are brilliant at de-escalation. Um, and uh, and sort of actually, what does that mean to give to give someone a different type of experience where like they um, they might activate some annoyance in you, and you turn around and say to them, "Yeah, you've really pissed me off, but I'm not going to do anything about it." I'm just I'm not not in a not in a I'm I'm not going to lie down and do nothing. Mm-hmm. That's that's not the point of it. The the point of it is is I'm not actually going to do what you think I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to rise to it. Actually, we're going to sit here and talk it through and work through it. And, and it's a completely it. different reparative experience for some of these guys. So yeah. they've never had that, you know, yeah. or they find it they and they find that difficult to engage in, you know, you know. Um, so one of our one of our officers, his nickname is Granddad. Right. You know, and uh, <laughs> because everyone treats him like their granddad, you know, right. and he acts like a granddad. He acts he acts like a he acts like a granddad. So, um, 
So they'd be like, well, would you hit your granddad? No, actually, one of my best relationships was with my granddad. Oh, really? Tell me tell me a bit more about that. What was that like? Um, okay, cool. And then, and then they go into it. And so, but actually trying to work with these officers um, to help them understand what's going on psychologically mm. and in, in, a, in a relational aspect, um, that gives them an edge and an upper hand in terms of the work that, the work that we're doing with the, with the guys in psychotherapy. So um, the environment on our wing is probably different to the environment on most wings. Yeah. Um, it sounds very it? different to the environment on uh, time, I have to say. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, the, so the, the prison officer um, played by Stephen Graham is, is someone um, who is playing a role of doing the very best they can under, under very difficult circumstances, you know, yeah, not enough yeah. officers and stuff. Um, but it does sound like, from what you're saying, Chaz, is that there is the potential for, to have a much different system, a system mm-hmm. where th- there is a potential for um, creating a culture wherein people might come out with some something where, come out with the resources where they might actually thrive, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, I, I would hope, I mean, I'm only, I'm only sort of... Uh... I'm early in my career, basically, in terms of in terms of this service. Um, I'm only sort of a year and a half in, and again, pretty much eight months of that was taken away by COVID. But um, in that time, um, where we've had to sort of rebuild the service from the ground up, mm-hmm. in terms of everything got taken away, and we actually had time to sit down as a group of therapists and and as an MDT and work out what we thought was important, what we thought worked, and what we thought didn't work, and and sort of uh, take on board the information from the from the the people that we see mm-hmm. what worked previously and what didn't work previously what can we jet jet jettison sorry um what can we what can we get rid of mm-hmm. and actually what can we improve upon mm-hmm. um all 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 while holding on to those relational aspects and those trauma informed aspects um cuz they're, cuz they're the underpinnings of the work we do yeah so uh yeah, definitely. We we definitely take a rehabilitative um, ethos onto into the service. And, you know, that's and, and essentially every one of those officers is on board with it. Mm. Um, you have to be if you want to work on those wings. It's part you know it's, it's part of our interview process. Mm. So it's actually um, you know, for example, we, we might give a scenario through the interview process. We're like, well, actually, what what would you do in this situation? Mm. What would you do in that situation? Actually, okay, maybe I'd, I'd talk to this person rather than going for a restraint or rather than going for um, like the pepper spray or whatever, mm. calling other people, uh, escalating a situation. How do, how do we try and de-escalate a situation mm. first before we do anything else? How do we try and de-escalate a situation? And just one of those things alone changes the whole yeah. Ch- changes the whole uh, interaction with somebody. Changes the whole ethos. If, so, if just one one small thing can create a chain of lots of other uh, very yeah. different outcomes. Just yeah. the final question I have for you as well: Do you get? Um, is there a sense from from uh, prisoner to prisoner that there is that there's the possibility for kind of like passing this stuff on? You know, like passing on the the some of these things the the thing about you know spotting a, the the Winnicott thing you're talking about about spotting a feeling and naming a feeling and does that kind of happen on a peer to peer basis as well uh to some degree to to yeah. some degree um so with with some of the 
people that we work with, they have very antisocial traits mm-hmm. and um, everything comes down to enlightened self-interest. Right. Um, which is about actually what's going to benefit me the mm-hmm. most. Um, and some of that will be actually, I need to have a good relationship with, with people just so we're not kicking off at each other and not having fights and arguing mm-hmm. and, and actually it creates a generally generally calm uh, wing mm-hmm. generally um, there are occasional flares uh, flare-ups of, of issues um, but the idea is around being uh, pro-social so there's a there was a paper by um, sort of Engler Carlson and Kielsa it's called affirming the strengths of uh, affirming the strengths in men mm-hmm. um, it's like a, a positive masculine approach or something a, a positive Positive masculinity approach or something mm-hmm. like that. They outline ten different things, um, and it is is about you know how do we how do you work pro socially in groups? Mm-hmm. How do you work in ways that positively affirm things? Mm-hmm. So um, you know they try and understand that men's men's ways of relating are different, or or we say different, but I think maybe different in relation to women's ways of relating to things. Mm-hmm. So there are things like. Um, Male humour mm-hmm. can be quite uh, so like banter and things. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the word for it. I was going to say because it can be quite rude, quite brash, quite yeah. harsh, um, piss takey. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, there's a lot in the banter. I was trying not to use the word banter. Um, sometimes it can borderline on absolutely brutally cruel. Right? Yeah, but that's that's sort of men's way of relating with it with each other um concepts of self-reliance for example mm-hmm. um so men are generally socialized to be self-reliant mm-hmm. so what does it mean to be self-reliant and counterintuitively what does it mean to be dependent on the group right you know so um and this is where i think there's a lot of oh there's a lot of work for us to do in group work mm-hmm. so we are just reintroducing the idea of group work because they've had a uh, best part of a year where they haven't been socialised together. Um, so with the the way they were sort of on the on the lockdown, um, you were only getting out to begin with. There was only like four or five people coming out at once mm. out of a, out of a wing of sixty plus. You only having four or five people coming out at once, and then that turned into sort of one side, one quarter of the wing. Now it's at half half at the moment, it, and and it will get back up to full unlock at some point, but we don't know when. Um, and so part of the part of the work that we did was is actually how do we start to socialise guys back into groups again because they've had a whole year where they've just been on their own for one right. whole year, um, or for the most part they've been on their own for one whole year, and so reintroducing things like the enabling environment principles um, was was huge, um, and getting them back into the room together and there was a lot of anxiety around being in groups again, mm. but actually being able to share stuff and being able to talk to one another um, with a level of humanity Mm. and you get moments where you see genuine compassion for one another and that is you know it's quite fleeting but you do get those moments and those Mm. those are the gold nuggets they're they're what you're looking for Mm. um so it's like well actually how, how do we how do we sort of so we look at, okay, I'm a man, I'm supposed to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, everything I've done is what's landed me in here. And then to subvert that and go, right, okay, what is it going to be like to be in a group of men? 
because right. it was going to be like it's a group of you. So we have, uh, for example, there's um, there's a group of there's a group of uh, lads who are um, they're in a gardening club. So in the winter months, they don't really go out to garden, but they actually between them they have joint responsibility for looking after a garden. Mm. They have to dig it, toil it, uh, soil it, uh, till it, mm-hmm. um, plant stuff, uh, reap it. So I think a couple of years ago they did pumpkins. Mm-hmm. Um, so when hard to grow. Yeah, when when they when they got to October, they harvested the pumpkins and they and they carved pumpkins, you know, oh. that type of thing. Um, obviously they're not allowed candles. So, um, but yeah, so they they carve pumpkins. Um, they then subsequently in the last year or so, they've they've built benches together, uh, painted benches. So so two of them would have been responsible for building a bench with one with an officer. Um, and then another one would have painted one of them, mm. and so on and so forth. You know, so so they have shared responsibility in terms of what they're doing, but it's for joint project, and that's the idea of it. So, so there's that possibility, which we'll probably talk about on another podcast, I expect, where there's the the possibility for doing a different kind of masculinity with each other. That yeah. kind of that understanding of what, it, what yeah. the rules of being a man are, the um, yeah. hegemonic masculinity, as we call yeah. it. But yeah, yeah. to look at an abundant different source of ways to 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 do masculinity in different ways some of which might be more comradely about more more supportive yeah. more of this kind of co-producing kind of stuff mm-hmm. and and sharing as well as you know so without feeling like you are any less of a man you know for men interested in doing masculine things that you know, that's this is like a, a a good way where it this kind of work can be tilted it's the yeah. the kind of work that I started doing when I you know, over 20 years ago and it so it sounds like you have the resources and the the culture wherein you might even be able to do some of that kind of work by the sounds of it yeah yeah it's um I can only I can only thank the people that came into the service before me so mm. um because it's taken a long time to establish I think the our particular service has been there for I think it was seven years mm-hmm and I think they've had two iterations of the team already, mm. and um, the we're, so we're sort of in the third iteration of this team, um, and the constant has been the officers. That mm. they've been con- they've been consistent throughout for the right. most part. Um, they've been the consistent all the way through, and that's really interesting in terms of how that um, that changes the relationship uh, between. Um, us as clinical staff and the officers, mm. um, because a lot of the a lot of the guys see us as uh, we're fleeting. We might be there for a short period of time. Again, we go back to those concepts of attachment. Mm. What does it What does it mean to to attach yourself to a figure only for them to be like, well, I'm only here for a year, so then and then I'm gone. Yeah. You know, um, actually the officers are there for the most part, so they end up becoming the they end up becoming that primary sort of care figure. And so when we think about what's going on for them relationally, what's going on for them sort of up, or the way I would think about it, what's going on for them dynamically mm. is that actually the officers end up taking on that role of the primary caregiver for, for, for these guys. And uh, they're, the consi- they're the consistent, they're the constant. Right. Um, and so what does it mean to have uh, so different figures coming in and out and mm. trying to provide care, but may often, you know, especially in terms of our... Uh, sort of our more junior staff it'd be a case of like well if they're only there as assistant psychologist for a couple of years and then they're moving on to clinical training and so on and so forth then they're only going to be there for a short period of time Mm. um what does that mean for people who are trying to build healthy attachments yeah you know it becomes quite difficult 
So um, and then to find that again on the outside where that might not have been there before is the the hard yeah. bit for them. Yeah, yeah. But um, again, part of that would also be um, making them aware of it, making mm. it explicit, and go actually like if we spend some time thinking about what it means to lose somebody, what it mean what it means to lose a what it means to lose a therapist. Mm. You know what it means to lose a, an occupational therapist or a psychologist or a counselor or um someone that you've built a good strong positive relationship with over a certain yeah. amount of time what does it mean to lose that person what does yeah. it mean when they go away you know and and is that is that a replication of something that's occurred to you in your past you know again so even that is therapeutic when it within itself you can draw attention to those things and, and presumably, uh, what to for them to con- consider their role in in committing to the process and building that relationship for themselves. You know, the yeah. you know that them coming to the room every week is is that reaffirming and creating the relationship that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Gosh, it's such interesting stuff. I'm so glad that we that we talked about this, Charles, because it, and um, it's interesting that you haven't seen time, and I have because it really <laughs> because this is quite a um, this is a very kind of complimentary experience. Uh, time is not set in a young offenders in, institution, and mm. um, the that but it's just interesting because it's almost as if they, as if your experience and this and, the, and this present drama are at two different ends of a spectrum i think probably are certainly yours is true to life because it is your life and your work uh, i think that at times certainly speaking to a sense of to a kind of a reality that also happens but i mm. think it's just useful to know that the that these are the possibilities of presence these are the possibilities um where there are staff where where people are where officers are trained uh where we might start to create different cultures and that's that, mm. that's the process for the possibility of rehabilitation to change to change lives and to change outcomes i guess yeah yeah absolutely um i take on board sort of uh there's there's a, there's a gulf of difference between a carceral and an abolitionist perspective and i mm. think this is somewhere in the middle yeah you know and it's somewhere in the middle which is it's not by any means perfect um but i think we we do some really good and some really difficult work with with some of these guys and we we have seen positive changes um so and i think that's the the main point of it when when we when we are able to we hit gold Mm. and you know i mean we're talking about sort of structural um personality changes Mm. so these are these should hopefully be um long lasting and lifelong changes for people and that's that's ultimately what we're looking for so um and i know and i know anecdotally certain people who have left left the establishment they have completely different relationships with their peers parents um other other providers caregivers or you know all all the people on the outside they have completely different relationships now and it's held them in relatively good stead Mm. so by no means is that everybody, um, because I don't think we'd have a hundred percent hit rate mm-hmm. e- even if we tried. But um, but yeah, so we're just in the we're in the rebuilding phase at the moment. And yeah. So I'll be interested to see what happens in the next couple of years. To be honest. Well, Jazz, it's such a pleasure to have had you on to talk about this. Uh, it's so interesting, and um, hopefully uh, you'll be able to come on the show and we'll talk about some of the some of the other stuff as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'd, I'd love to. 
Chas Sahara, thank you so much for coming on. No problem.